0: Hey everyone, back again. Now we're on to part three of four. Well my part three of four. Covering chapters seven, eight, and nine of Foucault's third series of lectures from the Collège de France titled The Punitive Society. So you know the drill, like, share, subscribe, help me out a lot. Tell your friends, they might love this, they might hate this. Who knows? At least you've gotten closer with them by sending them a message. If <laughs> if you can help me out monetarily, be your patron or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. If you're just tuning into this one what are you doing? Go check out episodes one and two of this text first and all the other Foucault texts I've done. Yeah. So let's start with chapter seven here. As I promised, I promised you, we're going to start by talking about France. Last episode, we talked about the Quakers' influence in the United States, informing the prison, informing prisons, and what happened in England. But now we're going to talk about France and how that was different. So in France, we saw that class and bourgeois influenced, how they motivated the uh, emergence of prisons there. Whereas in France, things were a little bit different. In France, it wasn't so much the influence by the bourgeois, but the influence by the monarchy in response to the 17th and 18th century popular movements and uprising, the peasant revolts, like the Nupier rebellion in France, that was a peasant revolt targeted largely against taxation imposed against the lower classes against the peasant class and this is recounted most uh i guess in most detail in the previous series of lectures titled penal theories and institutions that i've covered on this channel that you can go in or this podcast that you can go and listen to if you want should be easy to find and then you'll you will expand your vast knowledge your already so vast knowledge it'll it'll just you won't know what to do with all of the knowledge i know i don't well, to be totally honest with you, I'm pretty much nothing without my notes. I have like, I don't even like more than a thousand pages of handwritten notes on all of these texts. Uh, and without them, I mean, someone could ask me about this stuff in five months time and I'll be like, I got to check my notes. You know, I don't I tend to not really feel comfortable. I don't know why the hell I'm talking. Anyway, so there was <laughs> those monarchical influence in France as opposed to the bourgeois Influence that was seen mostly in England. So, as we talked about in the previous set of lectures, the one titled Penal Theories and Institutions, what we saw in France was a heavy reliance upon the army and justice, justice system, for repressive purposes. But into the 18th century, justice was becoming more cumbersome. It was hard to keep using judicial apparatuses, there were too many crimes, Uh, it was becoming more about money. Judges wanted to get rich, so they would charge fees to do their job. Uh, and the army was way too costly. You can't just deploy the army every time there's a revolt because that costs a ton of money. Instead, the monarchy then needed a new apparatus of control uh, in the form of like ostracization, ostracization, which could be used to just send people away, but we know the problem uh, with that. But it was anything really. there was just this search for a better way to deal with criminality. So instead what was seen was a broader administrative body emerge that could help keep track of people, their movement, what debts they owed, the taxes they owed and so on, but also a police force that would help to enforce the way that these what these people owed to the state and to other people. But people weren't stupid. People can recognize when they're being oppressed. And repress. they can acknowledge that the state is using new kinds of tactics to keep them under control and to guarantee that they're going to be paying taxes to that state they're going to be able to they're going to keep track of you they're going to knock on your door repeatedly they're going to come after you there's no way to avoid it how do people then consent to this like why are there not more revolts in response to it well Foucault gives two possible strategies to avoid new revolts emerging in response to these new kinds of control. Now, I want to say here that this, I don't think this idea that he gives us here of these two kinds of control is quite as developed as he should have developed it in the lecture. But in any case, here they are. He says that on the one hand, there's what he calls the fascistic strategy, a fascist-like strategy that requires indoctrinating everyday citizens to be part of its machinery. To make you know to hire regular citizens to be like the police, to be the administrative bodies, to be the tax collectors, and so on. But then he also suggests that there's um, a more concentrated type approach, and that is to maintain power very clearly in the hands of a few people who you don't want to screw with, who are going to uh, uphold the system. So the fascistic strategy, the fascist like like approach, tries to incorporate as many people as possible. And to bring them into the fold by appealing to their nationalism or racism, so you sell them ideas that their cooperation is going to be for the benefit of their nation, of their race, of their class, and so on. It therefore makes, um, it makes the police and these administrative bodies look somewhat innocuous. 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 Look harmless. I mean, Bob down the street works with the cops. I mean, Bob's a great guy. Why would you? What's wrong with that? It's all going to be fine. But Bob is not just Bob in that setting. Bob very much takes on a different personality and embraces different values and upholds different values than when he's, you know, just mowing his lawn down the road. Now the other kind of power or the other way in which this power is normalized and made to seem like it's not actually power exercising itself. By maintaining power in the hands of a few, it convinces the people that their interests are being and can only be represented by those people in power. So here you get like the Donald Trump type strategy, which is, you know, it's not like there's a clear division here between the fascistic strategies and those of um, megalomaniacs, but they claim to be the only ones who can represent those those hurt masses those masses yearning for more wealth, for more power. They say, I am your savior. I I can save you. I'm going to be the one that is going to lift you out of your predicament into the spectral light of prosperity and so on. So uh, the Donald Trump example is just so easy. Um, Like he, you know, he he has a gold toilet and there are people who live in abject poverty who are like, this man gets me. (laughs) Like the guy lives in a gold. it's it's absurd. But in any case, this these were the the two ways in which this power, these new exercises of power were being normalized and being sold to people so that they would consent to them, consent, you know, kind of, but to um to avoid people opposing these powers and revolting even further. now, in France, there were also there was also a very specific phenomenon that had happened and that was it, w- it was a thing that you could do as a french citizen that helped to normalize power and to spread it throughout the social body to distract from the fact that it is quite localized in the form of a state and this was through what was called the Lettre de cachet the lettres de cachet were letters that people could write to the king or to the royalty to complain and ask for someone else to be arrested. So if Bob down the street stole my lawnmower, because he's mowing his lawn, he must have stolen my lawnmower. I could write a letter to the king and then someone could show up and arrest Bob because I wrote a letter. And this gives people the impression that they have power. It's like, I wrote this letter. I got Bob arrested. I, I, must, I have power. No one rules me. I mean, I am God in this situation. So with the this example of the lettre de cachet, we see almost this transference of power from the state, at least in the way that it appeared, from the state to the people. So there's kind of like a transference from this uh, concentrated type power I just described to the fascistic one, so that power was distributed everywhere. Except Bob's not a cop in this setting, he's The guy stealing your lawnmower. So this would almost be the word of the king that was motivated, at least on paper, from an everyday citizen who could then, you know, claim that they have some kind of control over the king. It was kind of a quasi-democratic type situation going on here. And Foucault writes that it is, in a way, a temporary appropriation of royal power with its signs and marks at the level of local power groups and individuals. It essentially gave the illusion of having power among everyday people and that power was benevolent. You know, it could be used for good. I, I know that Bob stole my lawnmower. Justice will be served and that will be it. Now, during the witch trials, this was often used where people would write in to claim that someone down the road was was a witch, someone in their town was a witch, and that then they would be dragged off and horrible things would happen to them as well. And of course this goes down. Sexist lines that can't be ignored. Foucault doesn't give it much attention here, but of course there are all of these other influences. Like who are the ones that are being called um, being called out through these lettres de cachet? Were they you know, people working certain kinds of jobs or others working other kinds of jobs? Were they mostly men? Were they mostly women? Were they people of color? All of these things are definitely worth considering as well. And still before prisons, like we're not really there yet, the actual punishment as confinement would be uh, religious homes or or hospitals. Like if somebody was going to be confined in response to one of these lettres de cachet, they would be like sent to, maybe they were considered to be mentally ill, sent to a hospital, uh, or they would be sent to a religious home. So at at the time, though, this wasn't really seen as punishment. Like it was a way by which to correct someone, to to heal them, to heal their mind or to heal their soul in like a religious institution. It was a means of almost self-correction, which the letter writer often advocated. Like they didn't want anything bad to happen to Bob. They just didn't want Bob to do it again, which is fundamentally different than earlier ways of dealing with criminals in which they would just be like tortured or cast out of society. So as I said, this gave the impression that anyone could have access to power. Anyone could participate in it, and therefore that power was not discriminatory, or that it wasn't uh, being misused. Anyone could have access to it, and this necessitated lots more record keeping, a broader administrative body to keep track of all of these complaints. It's like uh, if anyone, if anyone watched The Office, uh, there's this moment where Dwight realizes that all of his complaints against another employee who who happens to torment him throughout most of his career. Dwight finds out that this other employee or the complaints that he'd been filing about this other employee hadn't been going to HR. They'd just been going to some random box somewhere and, and disappearing, which is kind of a reverse of this. It's like the administrative body shrinks in the face of uh, capitalist cutbacks, which I wonder in the future what that'll mean. But in any case, I don't know why I thought of that. This necessitated lots more record-keeping in order to keep track of all these lettres de cachet, to catalog all the complaints, to catalog the defendants, what they owed, how you know how things are going to be paid back. And this catalyzed psychiatric and sociological knowledge, like we talked about in the last episode with the record-keeping that was going on in the States, in the prison institutions run by the Quakers. So people would be organized according to their crimes... Which does the work of confirming power in their recognition as a criminal and they're being labeled as such and more specifically being labeled a certain kind of criminal where their certain act would put them in one category which would have a corresponding punishment and so on which was still like too specific for what would eventually culminate into the prison but it's important to really emphasize here that these are the kernels the beginnings of that prison system within france and this accumulation of knowledge it would it was slow it was cumbersome but it would accumulate and it would be used to form a police knowledge that would apprehend people through or by identifying the political marks bestowed on them by them being categorized and that have been set on them and so their deviancy would be uh would be recorded and would be collected and understood so jumping back in england there was the religious influence and the capitalist influence for an emerging prison system and it of course aligning itself with various other market interests whereas in france a continued emphasis on the state by the will of individuals helped to give rise to its own prison system where people felt like they had an active part in power they weren't Subject to it, they were very much uh, subjects of power. Does that make sense? They controlled power. They weren't victim to it. Both in these contexts, both, both situations in England and France, shared a fundamental concern with centralizing penality according to new class interests that could take advantage of the way that power and knowledge was coordinated in both of these settings. So there was this gravitation of power, obviously, to the bourgeois, to the state, and this could help to, and I should add, this power was being normalized throughout the entire social body, and the, this, this very centralization itself was being hidden. So in England, the working class were convinced that it was in their best interests that they hated people who didn't work, or people who broke the law. And in France, they thought that they were exercising power when they were sending bob to a religious convent or to be locked away somewhere but of course this was just a demonstration of still royal power of state power so power itself while still being centralized and in fact that centralization being intensified started to also be expanded and it became or, or, or disseminated throughout the social body and so it became known or believed that it wasn't occurring that the centralization and monopolization was not occurring, which made it all the much more easier for that power to keep existing. And that puts us here into chapter 8, which just takes off from pretty much the same point. So this progressive centralization of power allowed the state to put new penitentiary into effect and to usher in the punitive society. So at the beginning of the 19th century, New capitalist interests motivated new repressive apparatus to keep low classes in line. However, Foucault complicates this by saying that, or by pointing out, that low-class criminality, or what he calls popular illegalism, wasn't always feared by the bourgeois. They liked it in some settings. And here we're going to get into one of the more important elements of this series of lectures, and that is this idea of popular illegalism. And what Foucault is going to identify here is that what was at this time starting to be viewed as criminality wasn't always viewed as criminal as such. So during the peasant revolts in France, the bourgeois had no problem with mobs forming, with riots forming against the state. They liked it, in fact, because it was targeted against taxation, which the bourgeois thought was going to cut into their profits. It was only when these popular illegalisms started to threaten the bourgeois that they became to codify these popular illegalisms as being illegal and criminal in law, which reveals to Foucault the extent to which our very idea of criminality about the legal system, about justice, is so historically contingent. And it is dependent upon so many interests and factors that you know we can't attribute to it uh, like a divine quality to say that it's given to us by God. There are so many other factors at play. Now, additionally, within capitalism itself, it welcomes certain kinds of criminality from the perspective of old penal law, like under feudalism, while criticizing others. So under capitalism, we see that smuggling is accepted while banditry is not accepted. You can swindle someone on the market, but you can't go and like rob a train or something. It accepts tax refusal, but it rejects highway robbery. It says that you can take away from others by refusing to pay taxes, but you can't take away from others by showing up on their, you know, running over their wagon or pulling over their wagon and taking their stuff. But this is the crux of the entire capitalist system for Foucault and for others like Marx is that it is a normalized type of thievery where workers show up to work and they are paid for less than they are earning someone else. Because if they were paid the amount that they earned someone else, like if I go to McDonald's, I work at McDonald's and I make a burger, if I'm paid for the amount that that burger is being sold for, then the person own it, who owns the business isn't going to make money. So it depends upon my labor and the, my product being, uh, I'm being shortchanged on that product, which couldn't happen somewhere else. Like I can't go to, um, to McDonald's and then I, I ask for some fries and the cashier says that it'll be a dollar. $2, whatever the fries cost, whatever size you get. And I say, no, I'm, I'm going to pay $1.50 for this and then just take them and, and walk away. They'll they'll call the police on me and <laughs> I'm going to be screwed. But that's not really different from this other system. I mean, that cashier might be like not really give a crap. They, they don't care. I mean, they're making $11 an hour. They don't care. So they're going to just be like, whatever. And in that moment, I've just... I've done nothing wrong, at least according to the capitalist system that does that exact same thing against workers every single day. But because it is a criminality that has been normalized, it doesn't get registered as such. It's thievery that does not get registered as criminality. So of course this is a system that tries to privilege the few. It's designed to privilege the few. And so the lower class people within it try to appeal to the state to protect them, they're like, hey, these are bourgeois, the capitalists are screwing us over. State, can you get us out of this? Can you help us in order to protect them, protect them from economic exploitation? Which is definitely having the script flipped here. We're definitely seeing that whereas previously the lower classes would have opposed the state for taxation, for stepping in line of their accessing wage labor, as economic exploitation increases. People definitely see the need to appeal to the state as being like something that will defend them in the face of capitalist interests, because at least people in the state, you know, you vote for them. Like their power is dependent upon the consent of the people in a democracy, at least ostensibly, one that's free um, and not subject to throwing overthrowing capital buildings. But you don't vote for the people who are going to exploit you. You're often forced into positions. Uh, of exploitation given circumstance and given everything else. But at this point, it's hard to say whether or not state influence is actually totally separate from capitalist influence. In fact, through lobbying, through everything else, these two come to be intertwined, where many of the state's policies actually reflect and try to maintain uh, the privilege of the few. Now, remember, I remember uh, last year, in Canada, when the last federal election occurred, I guess it was two years ago now. There was a very interesting moment during the federal election debates in which the candidates were asked. Uh, I think it, I think one of one of the candidates was asked. I think it was Jagmeet Singh, who is uh, leader of the NDP. He was asked in response to his desire to impose some kind of rent control or to protect renters. He was asked how he can account for the harms that that will do to homeowners, to people who rent out. And I thought that this was a really interesting moment, because what this question did was place the small camp of uh, of landowners, of homeowners who rent out, place them as a similar weight to the entirety of renters which is the population, like, magnitude greater than uh, people who rent rentees. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank. People who rent out their places or rent out apartments, landlords. I don't know why I'm like this. Uh, Claiming that landlords were an equal group, sized group, to that of um, renters. When if political parties' interest is to represent the people, it is going to democratically go for the, you know, the most people who vote for them, which just makes sense that they would then side with renters. But in the question was implied that their weight is actually equal, that somehow they can comprise the same size population, which is totally strange. And I thought it was just such an interesting moment. And one of the ways in which the state and its relationship to capitalist interest has been normalized and how they come to benefit one another. I'm sorry for that last like two minutes. God, I feel like I, my brain shut off for a minute there and this has been a long time coming the state has been slowly influenced by capitalist interests for like 500 years and if even before capitalism like early landowners wanted to have their um, interests represented in the state and of course when they transformed into capitalists it would, the legacy just continued and it came to influence what was considered legal what was considered illegal And it did this through three broad steps, which he just kind of briefly mentions. He says that it came about by appropriating the judicial apparatus, by buying offices, and introducing profit motive. It also came about by infiltrating the state apparatus. It also encouraged illegality to expand industry, where industries expand into parts of the globe where it can get super cheap labor, cheaper than the apparent rules based liberal order we live in should permit but they turn, uh, they turn their backs or they just close their eyes when it will actually benefit business. And it really calls into question how much they care about human rights and how much they care about uh, people's well-being. So when certain actions become a threat to the bourgeois, they turn penalty against it. They call upon the penal system to, um, to imprison those people, to prosecute them. So for example, dock workers in the 18th and 19th century in England, dock workers who could steal from their employers. So in this situation, capitalists commit thievery, obviously all the time, but when it's done against them, like dock workers stealing some of the value that they've given to the capitalists back, then suddenly it is a crime. Suddenly that, that that's not okay. And the wild thing about this is that it just it just seems like so obvious to me. But like you, you, people don't want to hear it. It's like it just seems so so obvious. But anyways. And interestingly I think that it was so Bentham designed the Panopticon and he, this idea came from his brother who I think was a capitalist who was worried about dock workers stealing his stuff. And so Bentham wanted a way to manage these dock workers for his brother's interests or his brother wanted this and the panopticon kind of came out of that and then Foucault took that up but in any case so because capitalism's logic of property wealth and ownership became ubiquitous it was all present throughout the social body it could very quickly be adopted and so anyone who attacked any of these things would be seen as hurting as harming the social body and be seen then as a social enemy So surveillance would be injected in the workplace and uh, to watch wage laborers who um, who are made to believe that their moral worth is contingent on their having respect for property of being hard workers, you know, using the property well, almost like as though they should be happy that they're given a job and they should be happy to be working for somebody else. So the role of the prison in the setting was to create a firm divide between delinquents and non-delinquents. So there are those people who follow the rules, who respect property, who respect wealth, and then there are those unsavory people who break the rules, who break the social contract, who are fundamentally flawed and evil. And so we saw here that prisoners would be pitted against workers. Workers would come to hate criminals. And like we talked about in, I believe, the first episode I've done, I'd done on the punitive society workers would actually be armed with weapons to fight against vagabonds workers would be hired not really hired but they would become the frontline defense to maintain their own capitalist oppression they would fight to the death to make sure that they were the ones being exploited and anyone who opposed the real problem the the exploiters they would be punished but there was the added effect of workers hating the fact that prisoners would get like housing if they committed a crime and get food. So Foucault writes that the prisoners' material conditions were no worse than the workers' housing conditions, and this encouraged resentment and animosity. Very much something we hear today. Very much very common idea that like oh, why do prisoners get um, why do prisoners get all of these benefits within prison? I mean. They should have the rights taken away, anything like that. Or people point to like Scandinavian prisons uh, and say, like, why do they get televisions and like video game consoles in there? Like, it looks like a vacation home, not a prison. Which, like, horrible thoughts altogether. Um, but not to mention the fact that it's just fundamentally flawed in that these uh, these prisons in which there's more investment, the recidivism rate is much lower. That is, people are less likely to recommit crimes. So it signals that it's not as though people go to prison just because they wanna be in prison. They go to prison for whatever thing that they've done and with better social policy, with more government funding, they're actually able to make sure that people don't enter prisons again. And this is something that can't happen if prisons are run for profit, by the way, because if they are run for profit, It is in the interests of the profit maker to make sure people still go to prisons, that prisons keep existing and that people keep occupying them. And that puts us here into chapter nine, where the bourgeois justifies, uh, or the the justification for their penal, penal and legal theory was, or they viewed it as being more legitimate than previous feudal ones because to break the rules before, within feudalism was seen as having just broken like some arbitrary rules established by some landowners. Whereas now within the capitalist economy, to break the rule suddenly means a lot more. It is almost to break not only a moral code, even though that's part of it, it's almost to break a natural law because capitalism's logics have become so naturalized within this world that to oppose it means you must be, like, against nature. You must be against God. One of the other ways that this was able to happen was with improved forms of communication and travel, which Foucault doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to, especially communication, all throughout his work, Um, like, as a mode of of disseminating normative ideas. He doesn't talk about it a lot, which is, or at all, really. Uh, There might be, like, some example, but it's definitely an absent part of his work. But what happened here was that whereas under feudalism laws would be determined likely in accordance with the state and the state's interests in that sector or whatever industry was going on in that area, under capitalism, where suddenly you saw all of these neighboring countries adopting the same economic system, the same economic values, this lent the idea or this contributed to the idea that it was natural, that it was all-encompassing, that to oppose it meant that you were opposing natural order or the word of God, so on. And it was occurring everywhere. I mean, it was happening in cities with workers and capitalists. It was also happening in in the country with the few farmers who stayed out there, uh, feudal lords who had transformed into capitalist owners, because there was an influx of wealth. And there was a transformation of these Rural country areas to capitalism and kind of the imputation or uh, imputation where there was suddenly inputted a new worker capitalist relationship on the previous serf lord one under feudalism, which meant that there were fewer opportunities to actually oppose the system at hand because with the sudden influx of money and with the attachment. Of value and prosperity to material growth and wealth where growth is the name of the game is the is the end goal whereas under feudalism it wasn't nearly as much growth it was about maintaining one's uh, noble status like of a noble Lord with it you know there was they always wanted to expand but not nearly like in the case of capitalist production there was a, a lot more opportunities for people to actually live their own lives they weren't going to be constantly expected to work harder and work harder and work harder for the benefit of their overlord only within capitalism where they are going to be expected to work that much harder that more stringent surveillance and control is going to be imposed to guarantee this growth for the sake of growth to guarantee this expansion for the sake of expansion which meant that especially in these rural country areas It would be harder and harder to get away with any kind of deviancy, quote unquote, or living for oneself, which would be branded essentially as being a deviant act, like being idle, like choosing to take a break when it's not your break time. Now, these increased controls meant that there would be many more revolts emerging as well, even though this power was normalized and there were measures put in place to try to mitigate Uh, the emergence of new revolts, still there were were many more, and this necessitated even more surveillance, even more control. And in literature and legal texts, the thief or the criminal is illustrated as an animal, almost as being closer to nature, and as being separate from those who live and work, which is super interesting as well. And this corresponds to a broader turn in the way that natural life is depicted where historically and this can go all the way back to like the greeks to some extent to be closer to nature almost has a certain potential to it like you are an exalted figure if you are closer to god uh, closer to nature therefore closer to god whereas now being an animal or being seen as an animal or closer to animality is seen as being a vice being seen as being almost pre-modern, which connects to also an emerging scientific discourse that wanted to categorize humans based off of their proximity, not to nature, but to a higher order, a newly believed higher order, which could be used to justify racism against people who didn't live in the same social configurations that were uh, sprouting up in Europe. And it was used to justify European supremacy and uh, white supremacy in so many contexts. And this was used against uh, the working class very much, Uh, of course, as well against, um, against indigenous populations in the Americas, against people in African nations, and so on. Now, to conclude this chapter, Foucault considers the role of the intellectual in all of this. And for anyone more interested in this discussion, I've covered the text between Um, kind of an interview or conversation between Deleuze and Foucault in which they talk about intellectuals and power, the role of intellectuals, where here Foucault says that he, he, he has a problem with the way that intellectuals are obsessed with trying to find the stupidities of the bourgeois economy, very much like I do. You know, I say things like, it's so obvious to me how messed up this is. While, you know, I like to think there's some merit to that, Foucault is cautious insofar as that kind of places there to be a transcendent metric of good and evil or stupidity and intelligence that can be used to judge people's uh, actions, which is wrong, because that we're, we start off on the wrong foot by doing that. Instead, we have to consider the interests involved, the varying overlapping factors that contribute to any historical development any uh, societal development or any change and just by pointing out the stupidities of something is doesn't actually help anything at all so Foucault says that this is to work within the parameters of a highly abstract textuality that is what is said what is not said to just kind of deal with things in terms of their validity or their non-validity Instead of looking at the discourse and the ways that the uh, the various forces work within and against one another, to take a more a broader holistic approach to it. Now, as one of the footnotes suggests in this uh, right here in the in the text, by the um, translator or the editor, can't remember which, who says that this is very much a jab at Derrida, and it is. And there's another text that I've covered. Um, where Foucault takes charge at, takes aim at Derrida, it's um, this body, this paper, this fire that I've covered. And I've done an episode just on Foucault's criticisms of Derrida itself you can go find if you're interested. But the point is that for Foucault and Derrida, it's way too abstract. It doesn't consider the specific historical, real, material influences behind these historical developments, considering ex- instead these abstract qualities of something being reduced to textuality which Foucault says is fundamentally unhelpful. And yeah, that'll put us into chapter 10. We'll cover that next time, as well as the last, the other last chapters, 11, 12, 13, and the course summary. But yeah, if there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. And um, yeah, tell me if you agree, disagree. And I'll catch you n- later, next time.